Welcome to Lessons from the World's Best with me, Paddy Upton. This episode features the greatest downhill mountain bike race of all time, South African Greg Minaur. At the age of 15, his parents and headmaster agreed that he cut school and head over to Europe to train and compete at the epicenter of the sport. At the time, he was the first African rider to feature in World Cup events, which he soon went on to win at the age of 19. In 2021, Greg was crowned world champion for the fourth time in his 21-year career, which also included being runner-up to the world champion on four occasions and being placed third on another three. He has won a total of 23 World Cup events, which is the most by any race in history. And at the age of 40, he is still competing and winning. In this interview, Greg, who describes himself as having less confidence than many of his peers, discusses how he has stayed at the leading edge of this high-intensity, high-risk adrenaline sport for over 20 years. He discusses how he manages fear of injury and crashing at speeds of over 70 kilometers an hour, how he manages to maintain such consistent performances and a consistent performance mindset, what it means to adapt and adjust to changing times and conditions, and things like how important it is to ride your own race in sport and life, to choose the path that is best suited to you. He explains what it takes to ride the fine line of the perfect race, which has hesitation and caution on one side and reckless overstriving on the other. He also offers advice to the recreational mountain biker on how to go faster and get injured less. This and more. Greg is the goat of downhill mountain biking, the greatest of all time. He engages here in his trademark, relaxed, cool and calm manner and his lessons are applicable to sport, business and all of life. Please enjoy this episode of Lessons from the World's Best with literally the world's best in his game, Greg Minar. Greg, great to, to have you on the show. Thanks very much for saying yes and I look forward to this conversation with you. Where, where are you sitting at the moment? Yeah, uh, thanks Patty. Uh, it's... Um... I'm I'm in Andorra, which is a European base and home, and uh, it's well up in the Pyrenees, so it's it's beautiful right now. Summer's just kicking off. Okay, so in in mountain biking heaven. So tell me, um, Greg, a lot of the listeners, I guess, they might be some weekend warrior mountain bikers, but as we talk about your journey, let's first just set the scene and help me understand a little bit about downhill mountain bike racing what is it what does a race entail what is an event and what is the season so we sort of know what we're talking about here and what the listeners are listening to so the season kicks off in, in april finishes in september so it's, it's a summer sport um in the northern hemisphere um we, we mainly race on on ski slopes so or on ski resorts so um it's the uh it, it gives the mountains areas to work on when there's no snow. So a lot of the, the ski parks become mountain bike parks um, through the season, through the summer seasons, having obviously probably nine months of, of no snow compared to the three months of snow. So it, it broadens the, um, the area out to different sports. So mountain biking predominantly goes into all the ski resorts. Uh, we race the season um, fairly compact and... Um, we go through Europe, North America, um, sometimes down to, to Australia, South America. We've been down to South Africa a few times as well. Um, downhill is a, is a time trial. So we start at the top of the mountain and time trial down. Very much the same as downhill skiing. And 
yeah, that's that's uh, that's it. Um, and are there different events in different countries, or is there one sort of main World Tour, World World Series, Championship, World Cup in the mountain biking game? So there's a few different series. The the World Cup series is is the the penultimate series, and then that's the the main series every race, and it's. It's really hard for us to focus on the other series as well. You know, it's such a high-risk sport. So um, it's uh, better that you just focus on, on one of the series. So uh, I'm I'm solely the World Cup series as well as the World Championship, which is just one of event. Um, there's also Crankworks, which is also an international series, but limited to about four or five events. And then there's a, the IXS Cup European series, and there's some North American series and as well as national series. So there is quite a bit of racing. And uh, But like I said, it, it's really hard to, to to do them all. Sometimes, you know, an athlete will go and do a few national series to just get prepared for the World Cup. But it's, it's very rare that a, a top athlete will be doing both. So we'll jump into the detail of it. But what is – so you're at the top of your run. What does it take to be a – a top downhill racer and to be able to get through a season and not be injured and get podium, podium finishes. What, what are the key ingredients that is required to be a top downhill mountain biker? The first thing is probably fitness. I mean, fitness is, is, is the key ingredient to most sport. Trying to get that combination of power to um, endurance fitness is, is key. Um, you know, it's, it's quite an explosive power sport yet you need the endurance over the weekend to be able to be strong into that final race. You see a lot of accidents mainly happen towards the bottom half of the track when riders are fatigued, mentally fatigued, physically, physically fatigued. And um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one in itself. But getting the training out the way, uh, mental game's got to be up there. You know, you, you've got to be confident, and, and it's like a subtle confidence. It's... Um, you don't want to be this, you don't want to go in with this gutsy fireball of confidence, just blasting through everything because you won't get far down. You know, there's there's elements of risk that you need to encounter and, and adjust and understand on your way through the run. Um, you know, for me, a, a perfect run is, is racing at 110%. You know, 100% is going to get you maybe a, a top five, top 10, but a 110% will get you in the top three. Trying to calculate that while you're racing is pretty tough. Um, you know, on sections of track where you don't feel very confident or or maybe understand that you're not as quick as the other riders, you'll probably need to gain for that loss further down in a section where you do feel comfortable. And that's where the risk comes in. So, you, you know, it's, it's a calculated risk. You know you can do it possibly without breaking, you know, like a 99% chance. And uh, just probably a 5% lack in confidence while trying to do that um, can lead to a crash. So it's, it's such a funny one. You know, you can be super confident and then have something that's so abstract and just so abnormal, just interfere in your run, be slightly offline or, or a little bit of wind or something else. And, and uh, it, it can absolutely just turn your run from, from this uh, incredible race to one where you lie on your back wondering what just happened 
Sure. And that, I mean, it's fascinating that confidence and you talk about a hundred. So there's the, what we often see with athletes and you would know it very well is that, that confidence that's a front, it's a cocky confidence and it's an arrogance. It's a, a cover up. It's an, it's a false confidence. That's a cover up for an insecurity or doubts that sits underneath it. Yeah. So, it, works well in the, it will work well in the pits, but it never works on the track. Yeah, I can well imagine that overconfidence is going to lead, as you said, to a crash. But any lack of confidence that gets you only at 100% is not going to get you in the top five. How did how did you get into the sport? So I will have already introduced you. Um, I've already introduced you and what you've done um, and the accomplishments you've had. So, you know, and you've, you t- t- people speak about you being the greatest downhill race of all time how does it sound when you hear people say that or you read that about yourself well uh, i got into the sport my parents bought a bike shop when i was maybe 13 14 and um, i was racing motocross at the time i started racing motocross at four and a half so uh, when i transitioned to bicycles um, i found a, a, a natural ability to be quicker than most of the other bike riders on the descent and uh, so I raced cross country because that's what we did in South Africa and um, I wanted to specialize more to downhill because I enjoyed that more and uh, I felt it was a lot more similar to motocross which I still love doing and and still do today and uh, yeah that's what got me into mountain bikes and bicycles motorsport was was what my first love was and uh, finding downhill was, was something that I just stumbled across along the way. Um, I, I, I remember going to my first World Champs in 97. Uh, I was 15. I raced as a junior, so I still had a couple more years as a junior. Um, back then in South Africa, we didn't have the equipment, so we, um, we were a little bit starved on the equipment side. We were racing bikes that went down our bikes. And uh, I remember qualifying really well. I think I was 12th in the qualification and then had a massive crash and, and didn't really um, feature anywhere. And uh, I got back got back home and, and went straight to my parents and said, you know, I need to, um, I really want to go back and, and have a go at the sport, but I really need to get to Europe and understand this terrain. It's completely different to what we race in South Africa. And um, I, I, I just need to get over there and race. So. That's where it all started. That's where this journey kicked off. Um, to look back now, back to then, um, I didn't expect to be in the position I am. I didn't expect to be racing at 40 years old. Um, that's not the norm. Um, and I think that's, you know, it, it, in, in a way, I, I wish that I ignored most of the people and most of the critics along the way. Uh, but you do always have... Um, you know, you you do take a little bit of an ear to what people are saying. And, you know, if that was the case, I don't think I would have gotten into any kind of business that I have been. I think in my late 20s, I put a lot of focus and energy into um, business and investing and everything else because what are you going to do in your 30s if you, you, you stop racing, you know? Um, and, and that's probably uh, my biggest regret is, is listening to those around because... No one would have, no one could have, uh, no one could have made the assumption that I would be racing at forty. So what just what what were those critics saying to you at the time? Well, I think like any critic, I, I want to say that 
you know, I think coming from such a conservative country like South Africa, it's uh, uh, the critics of definitely you haven't finished school, you haven't got tertiary education, what are you going to do when you finish racing? Well, if I was in the position I am now and I finished tomorrow, I'd have probably been a lot better off by not being involved in anything else, but just focusing solely on racing. So the last five years I've really uh, surrounded myself with some great people to try and help alleviate the strain of business and everything else and uh, refocused and put more attention back into racing and training. And then results have gone really well. I mean, ended up winning world champs again. Uh, and so that's probably something that I, sh I should never pay attention to. It's hard to ignore, you know, uh, when every second person saying something, um, it, it's quite, it's, 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 it's hard to ignore that. Given your experience now of how things have played out, what would you say to those critics now if you were to advise them about what they say? There's, let's say the next Greg Minow is at 20 years old and those same critics now have the opportunity to have that conversation again. What would you advise those critics? Well, it's really hard to say. It's, it's hard to, to look at a person or an athlete and, and really understand what's driving them to the, um, to the end, you know, um, I, I think we have we have we come from such a conservative, generally conservative, uh, country. It's it's the the, the advice I give, that was given. I think the advice I'd give back is probably just to to let it play out. I mean, obviously you got to eliminate some risk along the way. You know, I, don't, I would I would not recommend to any kid to leave school and go and follow their dreams. I mean, that's that's far too too risky in itself. But nowadays, you've, you there's so so much opportunity with um, online studying and then everything else, there's no excuse for a kid not to be able to uh, pursue a dream and continue studying at school. You know, when I was when I was 16, it was done by correspondence, you know, and uh, you had no tutor online that you could go to. We didn't, we barely had internet. I mean, we used to dial in to try and co connect to get an email or two. I mean, it was ridiculous. Now you've got phones and technology and everything else. So I think, yeah, it's... Uh, I think we're, we're in a society now where we're able to take a lot more risk and uh, with a, a great understanding that the risk that we are about to take is, is more calculated than before. So, yeah. So to go back then, so it's, you left school at what, 16, 17 to go. Did you go to Europe to go then? Did your folks let support you to go? To Europe yeah, to go actually, they, um, I, I was on the UCI on on a UCI program to develop UCI. What is that? What is that? Just for the, the Union of Cycling. So they, the um, federation that puts in all the World Cups and World Champions. At, at that point, there, there'd be no African rider that had received any kind of medal in road cycling, mountain biking, um, any different discipline by the UCI, and um, I was supported by the UCI through Europe to, to race in, in uh, some of the European series and World Cups um, to try and develop riders from Africa. And so I ended up being the first African rider to receive a, a medal back from the UCI when I uh, finished. Well, where was that? I'm trying to think back to 99, 2000, I think I I got third at a World Cup. So I was then the, the first rider to receive a medal by the UCI. 
So were you, and were you, where were you living during that period? I was just bouncing around Europe. Um, I used to stay in, in the UCI um, in Switzerland uh, when I did some stints over there. Um, but yeah, that, that made it tough. I mean, there was definitely a period then when you go from growing up in South Africa and just enjoying being around friends and family and, you know, we, it's such a great upbringing to then being in, in, in a place like Switzerland where it's really sterile and really airy and uh, that makes you homesick real quickly. There's no one to have a bra with. There's, uh, it, it, it was tough. That makes you question whether you, you've made the right decision or not. So I can imagine. Um, and I'm trying, to pe- I'm trying to piece it together. So now you've, you're pursuing this dream. You're the first African. But there's people saying to you, you can't just ride and you need to have education or have other things. Um, how did you navigate that period early on? As you said, I mean, you're blazing brand new, a brand new trail here as a South African cyclist on now the world stage. How do you manage that? And how did you manage yourself through that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how I managed it. I remember an Afrikaans teacher gunning at me um, because I wasn't paying attention in class. And uh, I remember him shouting, just saying, what do you think you're going to do? Uh, race mountain bikes for the rest of your life. And I looked at him and said, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, it seems to have worked out so far. So I think I've bounced off all this negativity from, from quite a young age. And I think that competitiveness that I get from my father um, was out to prove it wrong, really. And in those, in those early days, I mean, the, from the outside, some of the stuff we had consumed, it seemed that the, the downhill races and extreme athletes were wild men, adrenaline junkies in a sport that wasn't that professional yet. Um, how is that? That's a stereotype. Um, you know, what is, how has the sport changed? I mean, I'm sure you do need to have that slightly, you know, risk averse side to be able to take the risks. Um, how professional is this, has the sport over the 20 years you've been involved? It sort of talks to us how, how's the evolution of professionalism in, and sort of balanced with that, the wild man or the wild guys partying adrenaline junkies. Um, it, it's it's an interesting mix that. Yeah, when, when I first started racing internationally, the, there was definitely a bigger party scene. Um, there was more of a lifestyle around it. Um, there was a big push from the French back then to to be more professional, and and you know it showed with one of the athletes back then who who was very dominant in the in the nineties and early two thousands, Nicolas Fulier. And um, the sport slowly progressed to, to become more professional. I mean, nowadays, the, the after party is not quite what it was. Um, but there's still a scene of, of lifestyle around it. Um, and normally, it's the, the guys who don't qualify for the finals, which, you know, there's only 60 riders that go to the finals out of maybe 250. So there's still a big scene of this um, partying. But, you know, it's I, I think it's such a high... It, it, the, there's definitely a big amount of stress on that race day and leading into it. You know, it's not like um, 
it's not like you can see your competitor or you understand where your competitor is. So you, you need, to, you know, you can't see a lap time and, and follow him down and see, oh, he's pulling on this section. You absolutely have no idea in that race from where any rider is. So the stress leading up to it is, is every single corner, every single section, you need to be on 100% and super focused into it. You know, you, you, you can't make errors. And so that stress, I think, turns into a big release straight after the event. I mean, it's uh, making it down is one thing and doing well in the race is another. So it's, uh, I think that, that still will continue. Um, but the sport is definitely very professional at the moment. It's um, the, the gaps between riders, I and mean, you can have three, four riders on a second. And, uh, you know, it's, so guys are really hustling to, to be in the mix of that top five. It, it's, it's a very high, um, a very high pace at the moment. And, and what, what is it in your sport that gets, what does it take to be in that top three? I mean, you've all got access to similar equipment. You've got access to similar training programs and similar diets and periodizations of training and that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing certainly a lot of other sports and I'm assuming in mountain biking 10, 15, 20 years ago, you could gain some advantage like the Frenchman that you mentioned who was a lot more professional. You could gain advantage by training smarter or having some smarter equipment than someone else. But today with the internet and the information age, that playing field has largely been leveled. Uh, what is the thing, and that's one assumption I want to check with you, and then given that everyone's arriving at the top of the run, really well-trained, really well-conditioned, got really good um, pit crew, really good support, you've got, really, you know, you got the latest and the best equipment that allow you to get to into a podium finish, what does it take to be in the top three? That, that's something extra that the other 60 riders or 57 riders in the finals don't get right or don't have. Yeah, I think you're right with, with the information age and uh, era we're in. Um, it, it's, 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 so, it's hard to say. I mean, you, you look at a, an event like Fort William, which happened a couple of weeks ago. I, I think I was four seconds off and worked out to about 1.4% off the, the leader. So 1.4% off uh, um, like a two-kilometer track through the conditions you're racing, there's just marginal gains. I mean, there's not much in there to, from, 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 we look at four seconds as a massive gap. I mean, so so pull that down to, to two seconds or where third place was sitting. I mean, you had like less than a percent difference. So we, we're in the area of marginal gains. So it's from bike setup to comfort on the bike as well. You know, it, it's, Unless you can push your bike beyond um, what you think is capable, you're not super comfortable on it. Um, you'll never push a bike that you're not not very comfortable on. At least that's the way I go about it. You know, you might have a quick setup, but if that if you can't ride that setup faster than you your capabilities are, then that setup's not right. So finding that balance of comfort on the bike, as well as not not ignoring the the modern um, technology of it, you know, we, we've got telemetry on the bikes where the telemetry will show us how fast the bike's pushing. Um, is the suspension pushing the bike forward? Is it propelling it? Is it slowing it down? And um, we can see that where, you know, I like a bike that's actually quite slow. It's slow to ride. It doesn't propel itself. 
but I feel that I can ride that bike a lot faster and and push it a lot harder than a bike that's really fast. So I, I struggle with that new age of setup where the bike is is harder for me to control. But that's, um, I, I still feel that that doesn't necessarily um, give them a competitive advantage over me. But it, it, this is just the times we're in where, where bikes are being set up a lot faster. So there, there's all these little marginal difference, differences. So, and then of course you've got confidence that goes on top of it. And, and you'll see once a rider's got a little bit of a role going, he'll be in, he'll be in the top five every weekend. How do you, how do you first of all get to that level of confidence? I mean, you say you need to bring that confidence and then once you've got it and you ride, you can ride that confidence, helps you ride and to be in, you know, the top five each weekend, as you say. How, how do you first of all, how do you get it? How do you find it? Well, I think it's it's also eliminating the stress, you know. If, if a rider's really struggling, he's probably not that far, far off. Um, We've also, a big thing in our sport is trying to find the right lines. And so teams have have spotters on track and film guys spotting all the different sections and making sure the riders are on the right line. I broke my arm to probably four years ago and was, you know, sat on the sideline. So I was helping out with the team spotting. And, uh, you know, you look at a section of track and um, multiple different lines and and you watch these guys go through and, and this this massive storm of spaghetti and then trying to figure out which is the best line to be on. And they're practicing all these different lines and going for it. And you've got one guy who possibly isn't on the quickest line, but he just hits that main line super fast and is not worried about what's going on around him. He's just riding that line really hard and ends up being the fastest in that section. So... It's such a tough sport because you you might be on the quickest line, but you might not be riding it the fastest, so you don't really know. You might be on the slowest line, but ride it really quick, which means you might be able to find more time on a quicker line. So there's so many variables. It's 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 how you attack that line. And, and I always say back to like the guys trying to qualify and get in there, like, Forget what's going on. Forget these guys trying to figure out the best line. You know, you're not quite there yet. You know, if, if you mix it up for a win and you're worried that, that a guy in second place on a way quicker line, you know, the, the guy who's leading the series needs to be on that line. Um, but if you can ride the main line and ride it hard and attack it well, you're going to be better off. And so it's main line with confidence is, is usually the the most simplest, but best advice you could give anyone who wants to qualify. What? So you're riding as hard as you can. You said earlier at 110%. What is the thing that you're looking, the risk you're wanting to avert uh, that stops you pushing even harder? That, that fine line. So on the one side of the fine line is riding within yourself, you're never going to get a podium finish. What's on the other side of that line that you need to balance? Um, Does that make sense? Kind of. So, so you're riding within yourself, you're not going to... Yeah, you want to ride at 110%. You said if you want to have a podium finish, you need to be pushing at 110%. Um, less than that is you being conservative, pushing harder than that, 
What stops you pushing even harder, even faster? That thing that you've, the risk that you've got to mitigate. Crashing. <laughs> and crashing, um, so you, you're crashing and, and, and the risk of crashing? Oh, what sort of speeds are we talking about here when, when you're crashing? Oh, 70 k's an hour. Um, you know, last year I was like quite lucky, well, lucky in the sense that um, it wasn't super fast, but you know, when you slam a tree at 40 k's an hour, it's, it stops you. Um, you know, the, I, I got slightly concussed from it. I didn't even hit my head on the tree. Um, just the abrupt stop. But, um, you know, and that, that's kind of a slower section. So a, a technical section is going to be, a slower section is going to be where the most time is made up. So the faster you can go through it. But with that, you've got stumps, rocks, roots, trees. There's a reason why it's a slower section. Um, trying to go faster than that ups the risk, but also ups the reward. So trying to balance that is, is key to find to find a little bit of confidence in that section that you can push a bit harder than everyone else is what most of the guys are aiming for. It, how much does the fear of crashing injury play a part at in the starting gate or in the race? Uh, not at all. Um, it's, um, it's, it's obviously there. You know it's there and, and you know where it potentially could happen or most likely would happen. Um, and those are the areas you want to tone it down. And for me, it's to try and be smooth, try and um, try and ride at 100%. Because if you can ride that 100%, you, you're off to a good start. It's easier to reach that 110 goal. So for you, you don't really have a fear of the injury? No, not really, no. Um, for sure, it, it can happen. And uh, the scary part is, is it could happen where you probably least expect it. Do you think that is fairly unique to you in a sport where crashing does carry a fairly high risk of injury? Do you think it's unique to you? Or do you think all riders at the top level have a similar, not, not really fearing the injury? No, I think it's like driving a car. I mean, you drive your car all the time without fear of crashing, but there's a good chance you could have an accident or even worse have someone crash into you. Um, it's, uh, if you've been in a big car accident, you'll always have that um, post-traumatic stress afterwards, you know. You know, if I was in a big car accident on the highway, we now want to brake, slow down, always check this, the rear view mirror. So it's, um, you know, it's there, but you don't think about it when you get in your car and drive. We, we're kind of the same. And then coming back, so, you know, you have that accident on the highway, you drive more cautiously and slower next time. You've had your, your fair share of breaking your arm and breaking your shoulder and that. Coming back from that, and again, my, my reference here working in other sports is for quite a few, not all athletes, it's one of the last hurdles they need to overcome is the body's fine, but it's the mind holding them back, fearing a re-injury and knowing that means another, you know, the, the trauma of spending six to eight months out of the sport, away from the game in really long, tedious rehab programs, as you would know. And that's the last hurdle to overcome before they can actually, and some don't ever actually ever get back to their their best, I've previous best. Injury is just the same as racing. You know, I, it, I find it challenging. I, 
I really try and, and tackle it as best as I can. I mean, it's it's not always easy when you don't see improvements and uh, and that can be quite stressful and tough. But I've never, uh, yeah, I toned down my racing a little bit coming back from a, an injury because there are still weaknesses. I um, they didn't pick up a, a torn tendon in my wrist after breaking my arm. So when I got back, I still had this this loose tendon in my wrist and. Um, yeah, you, you can't push it the same, but it's uh, I've, it it hasn't made me fearful of crashing. So what? And then just so that's the and pressures. What sort of what are the pressures that you would traditionally need to face? I mean, you any any athletes at at the level that you're at, there's in the lead up to a big event, in the lead up to you know when you're coming into the starting gate or cricket about to walk out to bat. What are what are the kind of things that you need to navigate to get your mindset into the best possible place to ride the best race you can? It's really hard because you, you, you. I don't know if it's a mindset. I, I think you've just got to be ready because you, you, you know, you can't. I guess you're preparing for it, but I, I think sometimes mindset can't just be switched on at the time. I think it's more preparation and and, and being ready for it. Um, it's uh, to me. To me, when I feel the the least confident, I put a lot more attention into the details around. Um, I'll study the track harder. I'll go over my bike suspension and and really fine tune it. Um, I, I find as soon as I I get into the details, the results will come. That's interesting. So you really focus in on the process and the preparation that gets you into the best mindset and gives you the gives you the confidence in your preparation and your equipment and in your planning. Yeah, because it's definitely not a feeling. It's not a, it's not a sensation going. Oh, today's going to be a great day. I feel really good. Um, it's um, you 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 don't get that luxury to feel good. You have to be good. It's um, you can't pick a time. The time's decided by the race organizer. The day is tomorrow and you need to be ready. So um, controlling everything around you and making sure the, the boxes are ticked is the best way you can be prepared. But there still is something. I hear what you there's, You mentioned earlier about that athlete who gets, when you get onto that role of confidence, you end up just doing well week after week. It's the same preparation, the same equipment, the same race, and yet someone is just more consistently ahead of the rest because of something. And you used the word confidence earlier. What is that? And again, that extra 1% that that person is getting right who is doing coming in the top five week after week versus someone else who's not quite getting there. Maybe it's a little bit of... Residual lack from the, the race before. Um, what does that mean? It also, it also can it also can go the other way. You you see the the season opener always is quite interesting where you'll have some surprises, some guys new to the mix on the podium, and you go into the second event and and it's the same guys as the season before. So um, although you can carry that confidence, you can also lose it quite quickly. Mm. 
So I, I don't know what it is. I want to pull um, you back to that residual luck. Um, I, I did ask the question. I, I, I'm not sure I buy into that necessarily. Um, <laughs> There's going to be some elements of luck. I mean, if, if someone's just come off a win, they're going to definitely roll into the following event with a slight bit more confidence, even if it is half a percent. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I get that. And that, that's what I'm looking at. So, so where, how does one get that? If you, if you haven't, you've had two or three races, you haven't done well. You're still equally well prepared. Last season, you've done well, but somebody just because they've won two or three races has got that extra half percent. Yes, we know it's confidence. Um, fear of losing. You know, possibly guys who who haven't had that bit of luck to to win an event um, into the next event with a little bit less fear of of losing because they've really won. They've really done well. They, um, whereas someone who hasn't been doing so well that needs to do well still has that element of, or still has that fear of losing. Yeah. And that could be it. What does the fear of losing make someone do that someone who's just one doesn't do? What is the difference between those two? And I know we're talking half and one percenters here. It could be on the exit of a corner, just dabbing the brake to make 100% sure you don't run too wide. Um, that dab of the break could be a quarter of a second, but he's done that four times, so he's lost a second for just to make sure that he's not going to drift off track or offline. So the fear of losing potentially what you're describing as someone is being just there, just being a little bit more cautious, not wanting to crash, not wanting to go offline, just a bit more tentative, where the person who's won. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, as you say, is how this, this, how that plays out in other sports or in other areas of life. When you do well at something, you can relax into it, have the comfort, have the confidence that stuff flows. But if you want something too badly or you, Fear not getting it, fear not winning. It just makes us a little bit more cautious, a little bit more tentative, a little bit just just touch the brakes on our life a little bit more yeah, often than what is required. Going for a six and getting caught on the boundary. I mean, all you need to do is hit hit it just a meter higher, and the guy would be able to catch it. Oh. It's just that slight difference that um, can make or break. I would put it to yeah. I'd, I'd put it to the fear of of not doing well, fear of fear of failure. Have you been there at periods of your career? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that you know, not being a, a very confident rider myself, uh, I feel that probably in one sense uh, maybe more consistent, in another stop me winning more. Tell me more about that when you say not a very confident rider. Yeah, I just uh, I don't have a lot of confidence on the bike. It's just um, and and I've always looked at other riders and seen how fast they're going and go, wow, that's incredible. And uh, and, and I, I just found in, in the later years to just kind of see it go out and say, wow, instead of seeing how quickly they're riding, to just go, wow, see what line they're on and try and take something from it rather than um, put myself into a corner going, wow, they're going really fast. Um, and so, so when I used to see that, I used to just 
try and do everything. I'd, I'd overanalyze sections, make sure I was, again, just super ready, making sure my routine, where I was going to try and push, about, push the limits of, of risk. Um, but there, there was that, that element of fear that backed it, whereas but now I look at a rider going fast, I try and see what line he's on and, and see if that line can work. And if it doesn't, just try and have the confidence to stick to what I know and, and push it really hard. Um, but then still try and tick all the boxes around it, making sure that everything's really prepared. Where my fear used to control me to uh, make sure that everything around me was overly correct. Sure. So I mean, that's it, it's fascinating to listen to. Yeah, you're saying you're not a you weren't you weren't a very confident rider. You judged yourself against others who you felt were so much faster, and yet that mindset is very very normal for most people. Um, you know, I, I haven't met. I don't think I've ever worked with an athlete, for example, who is genuinely full of authentic confidence, positive thoughts. Um, and who hasn't had doubts and vulnerabilities and insecurities and look at other people and the um, imposter syndrome at time to time. So you, you describe yourself as that, and yet you've won more World Cup races than anyone in the history of the sport. So so being someone, being full of confidence is not necessarily, or, or not being full of confidence is not necessarily something that should stop you from doing unbelievably well. You can do other things to make up for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's just that, you know, in, a, in, in probably most sport, you can't ride from a, you can't ride from a, a fear ball or perform your, your best from a, a pit, from, from a fear side. It, it doesn't push your abilities to the max. Um, for us, we need to be really relaxed. And you're not going to get that from a fear-driven um, result. Um, you, you'll ride a bit tight. You'll, you'll, um, you won't flow as well. You won't carry speed. You won't, you won't be as relaxed. So your bike won't work as well. So it, it's uh, it's important to try and understand that you, you can't you can't compete and and to your best ability from a fear-based position. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've often said that operating from fear and particularly a fear of making mistakes or a fear of being injured in your game, that will help prevent things going wrong and prevent mistakes and prevent injury, but it's not going to lead to success. It will prevent the bad things happening, but chasing success is the only thing that's going to lead to success. But the reality is, and, and that applies in life, you know, if you go around not wanting to make mistakes, you might succeed in not making mistakes. But that's not real success. So how do you have that fear, which is natural, which we all have? You don't want to fall, you you don't want to lose, but still perform anyway. Well, you got to turn it around to an advantage. You know, like understand where the fear is. You know, I could understand mine was seeing other riders on track because you see them all the time, and 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 understand what it triggered and triggered me to to put more attention into the track, uh, to put more attention to um, visualizing, and so now I do that little attention. You know, I put all attention into that, um, 
but understand that I, for me to excel and, and and be the best I can, I, I need to be relaxed and I need to be able to attack. Um, there's no way you're going to win a, a downhill race now from a, a fear-driven perspective. It's way too competitive. Um, I need to make sure that I can, um, I can be relaxed and to attack as hard as you can, you've got to be relaxed. Yeah, I'm not saying you've just got to like absolutely go balls to the wall. It's it's not like that. It's it's um, it's calculated. But when I need to ride 100%, I need to be relaxed, focused, and and uh, and going for it. And that 110% where I, I need to make sure I know the areas, the sections of track, and I need to be precise, uh, precise and, and make sure I nail it. Well, what I love about that is so fear prevents us doing things, it holds us, holds us back. The antidote to that is to go, okay, so what action can I take? How can I be proactive as opposed to reactive and, or defensive in the face of fear? And you turn that fear around to say, okay, so what can I do? And then you go and study the line, study what you need to do, up your preparation, really fine tune your equipment, your suspension. So you turn fear into, so what can I do? in order to overcome that and actually succeed, as opposed to what happens with most of us, myself included at times, is we succumb to the fear by going into inaction, going into defensiveness, going into tentativeness, as opposed to turning that around, okay, so what can I actually do proactively to get on the front foot, metaphorically? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's also, you probably know better, but I'm, pretty sure there's studies out to show the, the oxygen flow from someone um, competing through a fearful position to someone competing through a relaxed position. Um, I think there's something like a 30% lack of oxygen flow through through your body. So, you know, and you totally get it. If you can race a down a race and win the race, you cross that finish line and you honestly like, you know, you're tired, you're a bit out of breath, but you, you actually are right. You come second and you hardly can walk. You're dizzy, you're about to fall over. And and I don't know if that's just because you've possibly ridden tight. You've you've had some sections where you you haven't really attacked the way down, so you haven't been in your um the optimum state to, to race. Um I don't know what it is, but it's definitely happens. Talk to me about the concept on your experience and knowledge of this, the flow state and and racing. What do you mean? So it, I mean, this is this is the latest talk is flow state. Everyone talks about this flow state and being in this flow state. So, 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 what is your take on that? I mean, and, and what's triggered is you talk about the guy finishing is in is in really great space, and the guy who comes second is exhausted, and maybe efforting. I mean, what what is your take on the stuff that's out there and the stuff? And there's a lot of fluff as well around the flow state. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like I said earlier, you, I'd be nervous to to play too deep in that because you, in sport. You don't get you don't get the chance to choose when you need to be on form. You are told when you need to be on form, and you've got to make sure you're on form. So, um, 
I, I think trying to be in a flow state for a certain thing, for a certain time of the day, for a certain period, um, is kind of tough. I, I don't know if I could do that. Um, getting getting yourself into like the right mindset and and optimal performance, I think, is a little bit different. Um, I don't know. You tell me. I'm, well, I'm, again, I'm interested in your experience. So, do you find there's times when you when you do a race or have a run that it's slightly different? That there was just in the flow that got people talk about everything happens in slow motion and you can anticipate ahead of yourself and it's just so fluid everything's so fluid and there's an effortlessness compared to when you're in your thinking brain it's you're efforting you're conscious of everything you're calculating the whole time um it's just a it's a a different level of consciousness it's a different experience when you're in one or the other i mean does that yeah, resonate I mean, do you, you experience that when you daydream. I think it's it's the easiest way to put it. But for me, I I don't know. To me, it's more a routine and and being ready rather than trying to be in a certain state. Yeah. So I don't I don't think there's many people, maybe lifetime meditators, who can readily access and decide to go into a flow state. Um, but by setting up an ideal set of conditions that gives you the best opportunity to slip into it. And it's something that happens. It's very often, you know, it's not a deliberate or intentional thing. We, I say I think athletes are lucky to slip into it. And it normally it's because you have set up all the ideal conditions in terms of your preparation, um, in terms of the levels of pressure, the levels of fear need to be optimal, um, the challenge, the everything needs to be ideal. And when it, all the external factors are in a deal space, it gives you the best possible chance. If you haven't done the preparation or you haven't done the course before or there's something that you really don't know and you're not prepared for, you can't access the flow state because your thinking brain will just kick in to try and calculate that the whole time. Yeah, I'd go along the lines of the preparation. To me, it's... It's all, yeah, I, I couldn't say that um, I've hit some type of state in any race where I feel like it's um, su more superior than anything else. You know, I, I plan my run, I, I go through the routine, I understand what I need to do mentally. I do a lot of uh, visualisation over the weekend um, and make sure that that's the same week in, week out, you know, whether I execute everything like I should be, um, that that sometimes differs. Just you know, that's that's the the sport we're in with. It's quite hard to to get on top. But um, sure, I can imagine there's um, people that can tap into the flow state, probably can excel in in, in whatever they're doing. But I don't know. I don't know if I can rely on trying to tap into it at every race. Have you always been this diligent in your preparation for a race? Um, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. You know, obviously we've learned a lot over the years as well and, and understood a lot. Um, but I, I would say I have been.
people who know you outside of racing, what, how would they describe you, sort of your, you as a person, your sort of character traits or... Jeez, I don't know. Depends who you ask. <laughs> I have asked one or two people. I'm just checking in uh, with you. <laughs> let's hear what they say. <laughs> no, I've asked you the question first. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think I think people uh, tend to feel I'm quite laid back, but um, I think I, I, I put on quite a poker face. Um, I, I, I am generally in a in quite stress position most of the time. I just got a lot going on, so it's hard to juggle everything. So, um, But I, I think people tend to sit more relaxed side. I like to be social too, so that, that helps. I mean, I'm definitely experiencing you as very chilled and relaxed in this conversation. There is something, you know, you've been in the game 21 years now and long, longer, um, you know, how many other 40, how old are you now? 40, 41? 40, yeah. 40. How many other 40-year-olds have been competitive and racing on at the level, at the highest level and podium, podium like you are? Have guys um, done no. that before? No, no. So um, there's something think... about what, what is it about you, dude, that has got you to endure for this long? What are the pillars that you've built your 20-year odd year career on? I think I've been able to adapt and to adjust. So, you know, you'll always get a, a someone coming along who's a little bit quicker than everyone else, a little faster, and um, trying to understand what they're doing differently. And, and, and you know, the way, way we grew up riding, riding lines, riding technical sections is a lot way different to what we do now. I think... My longevity is definitely put down to being able to adapt and to adjust with times and not look back. Um, one of the common mistakes that I see is is guys trying to find the bike that they had their best results on, which was the year before. And then when things aren't going great, to try and go back to that bike. Um, instead of just pushing forward and understanding that they just need to ride faster and, and try and find the sections where they're really struggling. Um, going back to the bike seems to be their, their number one thing they're doing. Um, luckily enough, I haven't been in that position. I, I mean, I, I have, I, I've come through positions, but early in, in my uh, in my teens to, to look back at a bike and try and replicate it because it was a bike that I rode well. But um, with with all developing sports, I was there in developing at such a high rate these days, you, you need to be able to adapt to it. So adapt and adjust is one key pillar, which is, I think, universal, not just to mountain biking or sports, universal to life. You know, the, the degree we can, to which we can adapt and adjust with changing times and resist the temptation to go back to something that worked yesterday, to actually go forward to what's going to work even better tomorrow. I like that a lot. So that's one pillar. What else? Well, it's one pillar with, with different, um, it's one pillar with different arms, you know, because on one side you've got the equipment, which we're developing and adjusting and changing. And on the other side you've got physical, um, your body, understanding injuries and, and everything else. So um, that, that can also be tough, you know, and trying to understand and, and trying to find weakness in yourself. 
um, is is something I've been able to do. So at the end of each season, I uh, go through everything. I go through my bike, um, try and find areas of the bike that need improving. I do the same with my body. You know, I've had, I was, we touched on briefly, I, had a, I was in a big car accident <clears throat> probably about 10 years ago now um, where a truck hit us from behind in a, in a stop on the highway. And so I had a severe whiplash um, with fractures through five, uh, C5 and 6. So I get a lot of tension uh, through my thoracic, which then jams the thoracic and makes me ride really, um, really kind of hunched over the front of the bike, which on developing the bike, we, we try to make the bike as long as possible to center, so I could feel more centered in the bike to be able to push the bike a bit faster. And then understanding that it's not necessarily the bike, it, it's more myself. I, I had some different trainers uh, to adjust and try and strengthen this weakness and, and, and loosen the thoracic and strengthen the thoracic at the same time. And that allowed me to then shorten the bike up to a faster moving bike. So, um, being so I'm, I'm 6'3", so I'm quite tall and being on a bicycle, it's, you, you, you're not the most sensitive rider at 6'3", when you're racing guys at 5'9", 5'10". So, um, I found there's a, there's a big imbalance. You're either too far forward or too far back or finding that balance is really hard. So I rely on, on, on making sure that I'm centered in myself and then as well as pushing those boundaries on on the bike as well and making sure that um, I'm centered in as fast as I can on the bike. So it's uh, trying to hit things from both ends. You spoke there about your equipment and your body. I mean, do you do anything intentionally around your mind and, you know, any mind training or the meditations or? I don't meditate, no. I think I'm more of a person that's able to switch off and allows me to switch on. Um, I think it's, uh, and that might be the other pillar. Um, it's, uh, you know, being a racer and being racing for so long, you, you've also got to get away from it and be away from it. And I'm lucky um, that I get an off-season, you know, coming back to South Africa where no one gives a shit about downhill mountain biking. And uh, it's been like that for years. It's, it's quite a nice break. Um, in Europe, you, you're kind of in the mix and, and, and in it all the time. So I can get completely away from it. Um, for at least three, four months um, when I'm back in South Africa. And then when I'm back in, I can get fully back into into the the, the whole stream of things. Um, and the same goes for racing too. Um, you, you can't be racing on a Tuesday afternoon when you race a Sunday. Um, you know, you need to be preparing, but I think it's important to, to make sure your mind's not in the race on a, on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Sure, really. Like, I mean, just listening to you and sort of relating this back just to general life. You know, you spoke there about adapting, adjusting, constantly improving. One, your equipment, your body, and you said the other one, you know, maybe the ability to switch on and switch off. Um, you know, and that I think that applies everywhere again. You know, you need to have the right equipment or knowledge, whatever it is you do in business or sport. I think one of the things that athletes are good at attending to is the condition of their body. Non-athletes the majority of them or corporate athletes are generally pretty poor at managing the condition of their body, but that really does support performance. And then the ability to switch on and switch off. Um, 
I think from in the, in the busy world that we live on even in at the moment, the ability to really switch on and switch off is something that I think for a lot of people has been lost. And, and maybe cell phones to a fair degree and technology has made it even more difficult that we switch, switch off by switching over to technology mm-hmm. and social media. And that does isn't actually a mental switch off. No, for sure. It definitely makes life a lot easier, but it, it, it also can not necessarily switch off, like you say. I mean, the other pillar that you didn't mention here that, that came through very, very strongly to me is your the detail of your preparation. Um, you know, in, 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 in sport, it's all one of the terms that's thrown about all the time is focus on the process and leave the result to look after itself. And it's become such a way throwaway comment or such a throwaway comment that everyone uses all the time that it's lost its glamour and it's lost its shine. And we go, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know it's important, but I don't Getting think... Getting the flow state is way more important these days. What's that? Getting the flow state is way more important these days. Well, the only way, well, one of the only ways to do that is to have absolutely unbelievable preparation because without that, you, you're not going to access it because you're going to go in with doubt. It's... You know, it's like going to write an exam, not having studied the whole book. You can never have a good mindset. But if you studied the whole book and you've really focused on the process of preparing, you can walk into that exam or sit at the top of your run and actually genuinely be confident and your mind might just slip into that thing that other people are going to call the flow state. But it happens only because you've done a whole lot of the process right up until that time. So, I mean, that's something that really has come through for me is your and maybe that's just stock standard in your sport that without preparing excellently you're actually not going to be competitive or finish a run or you're going to you know yeah i think i've always had that um mindset to you know i think we're kind of lucky as as athletes being able to earn a living off the sport we love um but then we get paid to train and i think having that kind of mindset to it is has probably helped me detail it a bit more is I feel like going to race on a Sunday is something I would have done for fun anyway. I did for fun growing up and now it's, a, you know, somewhat a part of the job, but I, I still see that as the fun part of the job and getting paid on a Tuesday morning to quickly go out and make sure I get all my training done before I sit on a podcast is, is what I'm actually paid to do. So um, that once you have that mindset, it's easier to train, you train better, you train harder and you get to enjoy the racing more. So a lot of people, there's a lot of mountain bikers out there. It's obviously become a very popular sport. And certainly I've seen in South Africa through COVID, it's just, it's it's boomed as people are getting out into the mountains even more. What, what do you have for a hobby now that your, well, your hobby is now your profession? Well, uh, I, I'm pretty lucky that, you know, my profession is a bicycle and it's a mountain bike or a downhill bike. But being in a sport where you've got so many different bikes to, to be able to choose from, um, uh, lockdown and and uh, kind of opened me up to e-bikes, and I ride a lot of e-bikes at the moment, which are, you know, it's not down on racing, it's e-biking. Um, I ride, you know, I, I go road riding with friends, um, I go to the pump track. Uh, I've got so many different bikes to ride. I still I still ride motocross once a week. When I can, I'm actually going out this afternoon with um, a friend of mine who lives at the road here in Andorra, another South African Brad Bender. And uh, so I still ride. Um, I love surfing, which I'm absolutely shit at, but really enjoy it. And um, 
I try and play a bit of golf now and then. Um, uh, 18 holes is quite long, but I enjoy a good nine. Okay. <laughs> and, you, and you recently, or you were going to, or recently have done your backflip on an e-bike? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that in lockdown. Um, I've got, a, I've got a, a friend of mine. We, we were in our late teens, and we, it was his birthday in like a week or two's time, and, and he was like, oh, we've got to learn to backflip bikes before my birthday and it's like 10 days or something so uh, we we didn't have the luxury of airbags or foam pits back then so we did had a couple of tries into the water into into the dam and then uh, took it to dirt and um, he got an e-bike in lockdown and uh, I said if he got one I'll get one and then we we had some jumps in, in the forest that uh, one of the trail builders uh, Nick Forrest had built so we took a stupid bet to then backflip the e-bikes as well so had to be done were, were they all right with going into the water e-bikes uh, we've never no i've never taken one to water that, that was when we were younger we took regular bikes and but you know that lockdown was was incredible and i think being an athlete for as long as you have it's it was a great time for our bodies just to you know not be able to push anywhere not sure when the next competition was we could absolutely just relax um, and, and, and enjoy life a bit. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, of uh, being a kid and going on school holidays again. It was a, it was a good time for me. Um, for the weekend warriors who are listening in, and there's probably a couple of blokes who would love to listen in to figure out how they can, what they tip they can get to beat their mates down the hill on a weekend but also not break their collarbone. What would one, what would one or two tips be for going downhill for the weekend warriors who are listening? I mean, the biggest thing you see is people don't look far enough ahead. Um, and, and the problem is if you don't, you, you end up reacting to things rather than acting to things. Um, so you need to look at least four or five metres ahead um, and be able to see the terrain. And once you, you know, it's like driving in the car, if you look down um, and look at the, the, the white line, I mean, those dotted white lines just flash past you. But if you look up on the road ahead, it takes forever for them to come past you, you know, and, and it's the same thing riding a bicycle. Uh, you need to look up to be able to see the obstacles, see the turns, be able to act accordingly, not react, suddenly there's a corner and, and the brakes and, you know, whatever, or if there's a, a drop to, to just, you know, slow things down a bit. And, and that's one way to do it is just to look ahead. Look ahead. Again, not just relevant to downhill biking. Advice to a young um, Greg Minar or an aspiring someone or maybe even just a, an athlete, a young athlete wanting to get out and really they're 19, 20 years old, they've got a whole lot of people saying go and study, you've got a career ahead of you, that's the sure bet, but you've got your dream. What advice to that youngster? Yeah, I, I mean, from for a youngster, I definitely say you got to pursue it. I mean, if you got time in your hands, it's it's one way you're eliminating risk. It's time, right? Um, give yourself a chance to go for it. Um, I, 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 w- I wasn't a, a by far a top athlete as a junior. I think I, I well, I did. I finished sixth twice as a junior, um, but then won the World Cup my second year elite. So. Um, I only, you know, 
junior racing and youngsters, it's, it's really hard to, to understand um, the full potential of an athlete and you might not reach it as a junior, so you need to give yourself a bit of time. Um, I, it, it, it is, I, I think if you, if you really feel you've, you've got something and, and you know you have, um, you, you need to give yourself the chance and go for it. It's, it sounds cliche and everyone says, you know, you're going to make the most of it, but you do. Um, there's opportunities, take those opportunities and, and make the most of them. Um, you know, I could have easily followed and um, advice given by teachers and I wouldn't have been where I am today. So it's, uh, you, you get to choose these paths as well. And, and then the parents of those kids, what do you say <laughs> to the parents of those you know, kids? I was really lucky I had... Um, I've got some great parents, you know. Obviously, as a as a fifteen year old, coming to my parents saying I want to leave school, the the first thing they said was no, but but they also thought about it. Um, my dad's always had a lot of um, confidence in me, understanding my ability, and and letting me weigh up the weigh up the risks. Um, my mum possibly not as much, but. Um, you know, they, they went to the headmaster and they got as much as, as much advice as they could get around them. And, and eventually the, my headmaster just said, you know, it's, um, I, I, I struggled at school too. I, um, I have a, a lack of attention. Uh, so it's, um, it, it was, it was, it was tough, but, um, my, my headmaster actually just said, you know, go and give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, you can always come back and finish it off. Nowadays, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, back in the 90s, things were a lot harder. We didn't have internet, we didn't have phones. Um, I think there's no excuse for, for any kid to, to drop school and, and focus on sport. I think there's plenty of time to do it. Um, so, I, I, I think back to my parents, I think they, they got advice around them rather than taking just the, the stable diet. Um, I, I was quite lucky for that. Cool. A very broad question, um, you know, if you scanned back over your time traveling around the world and competing and being in the, around the people you've been around, what are some of the things that, the key things at Mountain or that your career has taught you about life that let's say you would pass on to kids or something like that? What a, yeah, what has it taught you about life? I think seeking opportunities and and you know, if you if you look for opportunities, you'll find them, um, and you'll find the right one. Um, I, I I do believe in that. I think it's important. So you got I don't think I would have have been able to have such a broad view on on certain things if I I hadn't travelled and I hadn't experienced it. But um, yeah, so you got opportunities. I always ask one question to all my guests. If there was a really good question I could ask you now, what would it be? If there was a really good question, well, I don't know. We've been through quite a lot. Yeah. Oh, you, you would have had, you would have had a lot of questions from a lot of people and a lot of interviews. What would be a really good one? Um, uh, what would be a good one? Um, 
I feel like we've kind of cracked them. I, I wasn't expecting such such tricky questions to answer. Um, you'd probably hear by my, my answering that I was stuck and stumbled quite a lot. So I think I think we got them. I think anything process related I, is normally good questions. I think that I've had a great process and it's worked for a long time. I sometimes don't always think about it or talk about it as much as I probably should. Just say that last bit again. I think any question related to the process and how I've done things is probably a, a good question, which I think we've covered. But, you know, it's something probably that I don't um, think or, or speak a lot about. And um, I think it's maybe, to me, quite simple, but maybe to others not that simple. Yeah. And that's possibly why I've never really spoken or... So I, I, I'm, I would normally at this point not let you off the hook. Um, however, the fact that you're still competing, I don't, I respect that you're still competing and to have a conversation where we, you really share some of your, you know, the core process secrets, it's not appropriate while you're still competing and maybe, you know, other, other people are going to listen to it and glean something from it. Oh, I, I, no, that wouldn't bother me at all. I think we, we kind of covered it how how important the process is and how important it is to break it down to understanding the, the most basic part of the process yeah. and, and ticking all these boxes before competing is so important. Yeah. Um, and it's so easily overlooked by, by a lot of athletes. Yeah, and a lot of people, and again, you know, as I mentioned, the, the idea with us behind this podcast is not just to tell cool stories about the cool things that you've done, because if someone is really interested in you and what you do, they can always Google that, but it's to like understand at a level deeper so that th there is value because sport is a microcosm of life and what happens in sports, so in business and so too in life, um, you know, and you're someone who for a long period of time has a achieved at the highest level of a an extreme or high-risk sport where the stakes are relatively high um, in terms of physical injuries. So the things that you have got right, yes, have served you and your career incredibly well, but I still, and I, I believe so much of that, the value that you have to offer people in sharing even more of your processes, and for you it might just be second nature, um, but you have walked the path ahead of so many people and by sharing some of what you have today and continuing to share it's you know it it really can you never know where it can be a beacon for someone where they go shit that thing that greg said about uh, really adapting and adjusting and not looking back and looking forward or when you feel fear the fact that you really first go and double down on your process and on your preparation and making sure everything is set up so that when you pitch at the starting gate, it's not about trying to, which a lot of athletes do, they try and access some really good mental state or they pick up a phone call to a phone to a mental coach and say, help me get into a great space as I'm going into this really important event. But if like what you've done and what you've shared, what really stands out for me is you prepare so flippin' well that you remove all of that fear and remove all the doubt and you genuinely 
set yourself up with the best possible chance of success. You you have studied the whole book for that exam. You studied all the lines. You studied what everyone does. You studied what the new fastest dude in the game's doing. So you're naturally going to be in the most ready state, mental state for that event. Um, and that's just, you know, for me is one standout takeaway that you naturally do it. But by sharing that and sort of shining a light on it, you know, it's valuable for me and hopefully it's valuable for people out there. So and maybe more more so than what you know, the the value that you have to add to a lot of people and strangers that you'll never know you've added five cents to their journey. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, that's cool if it does. And I, th- I think one of, the, one of the things you mentioned about an athlete and, and preparing for something and panicking and phony and a sports psychologist and everything else is also... You know your 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 competitors are, are doing their own process, and and that doesn't also necessarily work for you. And uh, you know, I'll give an example for me being a six foot three, racing against guys that are five nine five ten. Um, they might be on an inside line, but for me to get that inside line, I've got to break quite a lot harder, being heavier, and uh, then having this. Uh, a higher center of gravity, it's going to be harder for me to hold that line. So I won't be able to take it as hard. Um, so I can stick to that or I can go into a perfectly grim outside corner but be wider but understand that um, I can attack that section a lot harder. So I think athletes also are easily influenced by what other athletes are doing. And um, I think the process of Understanding your strengths and weaknesses should help you not necessarily follow other athletes, but kind of um, march to your own tune a bit. And we see that a lot in our sport, especially when it's, you know, it's so hard to understand where you are on track compared to other guys and, and trying to make sure you're all on the same line or not on the same line. It's, 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 uh, it's psychologically pretty tough. Um, but being able to have the confidence to stick to what you know is best is, is also important. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Pick your line. Pick the line that's best for you and ride your own ride your own race, not someone else's. Love that. Cool. Is there anything that we said to It's so hard to implement. <laughs> What's that? So easy to talk about, but sometimes so hard to implement. Yeah, well, a lot of these things are, you know, I said. But it's the people who apply themselves the most to these very simple, easy, throwaway lines of rhetoric that tend to get ahead of the rest, you know. Even as we spoke about, focus on the process and leave the result to get look after itself. Every single athlete knows that. But the most successful athletes actually do that really really well and do it better than any of the other athletes and so that's sort of what i've heard from you today and it's well small wonder um while the rest of them are just saying this thing that sounds really cool and intelligent um and it is smart but saying it is useless living it is where the value sits so so you brought up sports psychology how do you see an athlete using sports psychology at what point and at what time 
I think it's one one of it's a great question for me. It's 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 one of the tools that's available, um, and it's for the athlete to figure out when at what is the time and what is the topic. It's just like you you would use a, a strength trainer to get your body in the best possible condition. I I wouldn't recommend someone only use one trainer. You use your trainer, but you read and you Google and you look at YouTube about training your body. Uh, same thing around equipment. Um, and around the mental side, it's, you know, it's, it's a resource to be able to use to potentially get an extra 5%. But I don't, I don't think a mental coach is as valuable if, if you haven't done all the homework, you haven't followed your processes, you're not really well prepared. As I said, um, bumbling around here but if I, if I go back to that studying the whole book for the exam you know it's an athlete who studied or anyone who studied the whole book you could might have and I, and I have had clients that I've worked with who are really diligent in their process and just before a big event we would have a conversation and the conversation would be very brief and it would just be confirming the things that they want to just re-remind themselves of that already in place so it's a very brief conversation and confirmation compared to an athlete who hasn't studied the whole book um, and has got or thinks fear or thinks pressure or thinks anxiety is a problem and then they want a plaster. They want some technique or some idea to quickly stick a plaster over uh, the, the, how, where they've shortchanged themselves in preparation. So we can pop, pop a plaster over that. Um, and then it's quite nice because sometimes it's easier to have a half an hour conversation with the sports psych to get your mind into a good space. It's easier to do that than to put in all the effort and all the training that that actually gets you into that space anyway. So it's, yeah, and I mean, I, I you know, it's one of the things that I do do and I don't want, I don't want to do, uh, it would be ideal if I could do myself out of a job. And one of the ways to do that is to get athletes to become their own best coach to take full responsibility for your body, for your training, for your equipment, for figuring shit out yourself. But the only way you're going to figure that shit out for yourself is by speaking to other coaches, looking at other athletes, looking at what people do well, what people do do badly, and maybe speak to someone who understands the mind a little bit and take from that person, whatever the mental coach is, whatever works for you in your game, and then you run with it. Um, but it's not having a reliance on someone on the other side of the phone once a week for your career. Um, you know, that makes you dependent and reliant on something or someone outside of you. One thing we know about the best athletes in the world, they are their own best coach. They go to the trouble of taking responsibility for their game, their preparation, whatever it might be, their diet. And they use very good people to bring information, ideas that they might not have. Joe, I really like the way you, you mentioned the reliance side. Because uh, earlier when you, you spoke about an athlete calling a um, sports psychologist before an event, to me that's, that's kind of risky. And uh, a position that I wouldn't want to be in. Because if that phone didn't work, you'd be in a worse pickle. Yeah. Or if the line was down or something. Um, <laughs> but um, I quite like the way you mentioned to, to be a part of the tools and because I think it's important. I don't think it's... Um, I, I think people can use it. I, I, it's like being given a tool and being able to, to use that tool and put it into practice, which 
like you say, it could probably work yourself out of a job, but at the same time, it, it's um, these simple processes that are so hard to figure out sometimes. Yep. Yep. Cool. Is there anything else that's a question or a thought or a reflection over the last hour or so's conversation? Before no, uh, no, I'm easy going. If there's anything else from your side, yeah. let me know. I've got a lot, but um, I think uh, that's, I mean, that's really been valuable. It feels like a natural conclusion. Um, it's really yeah, been I think cool that, to... It was great. It was good. Uh, it was a bit tough in the beginning, but uh, I think we Greg was definitely one of the most chilled and one of the most understated guests I've had so far. What really shone through and what I was told by everyone I asked in doing my homework about Greg was how meticulous, dedicated and professionally is in his training and preparation. Greg epitomizes the latter person in the well-known saying that suggests hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. But when talent works hard, you're fucked. Greg leaves no stone unturned in his preparation. He studies the whole book for the exam. Small wonder he's the greatest of all time. It begs the question, how can you and I be 5% more diligent when it comes to studying the whole book for whatever is important in our lives? A big thank you to Greg for taking time off in the middle of his current and busy racing season to have this chat. And again, a big, big thank you to you the listener for offering your valuable time to listen in this is an advert and sponsorship free gift from myself and the show's guests to you if you feel so inclined a wonderful thank you would be to like the show leave a comment below and or share it with someone or a group who you feel may gain value i'm aware that many of you already do do this which i thank you for That's it from me, Paddy Upton. See you in two weeks' time for the next episode of Lessons from the World's Best.